O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Year in and year out, we sing those familiar words, don't we? And year in and year out, we do. We come. We come in our mind's eye or imaginations to Bethlehem, to the city of David. And for a brief moment, perhaps only for a few hours, we enter into this most remarkable of stories. For most of us, it's a familiar, well-worn narrative. We know the plot backward and forward. A poor young couple, barely beyond their teens, forced to make an arduous journey of many miles in order to satisfy the whim of a powerful emperor in far-off Rome. An anxious young husband, desperately searching for food and lodging for his weary bride, who is great with child. The callous, unfeeling response of a harried innkeeper, who without a second thought turns that young couple out into the cold, damp night. A little baby. Born in great obscurity and poverty in the most unsanitary of conditions, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Oh yes, we know the plot. We also know the characters, even the bit players. The shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, startled by a company of the heavenly hosts hastening off to Bethlehem to see the Christ child. The Magi, the wise men, exotic with their entourage, traveling from the far east over field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. We even know the villain, evil King Herod, paranoid and insecure, who in a moment of homicidal rage orders the death of all the little boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. Oh yes, we know this story very well indeed. As I said, we know the details backward and forward. And yet I can't help but wonder tonight how many people really understand the true message and meaning of Christmas. How many people really understand the true importance of this event for their lives? You see, the problem is that we have all heard this story so many times over the course of so many years that for many of us it has lost its power to enthrall. We have become desensitized to its glory. What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, in the case of Christmas, it's probably not the situation where familiarity breeds contempt, but I'm afraid that it does frequently breed apathy. For many people, the story of Christ's arrival on earth is little more than a quaint bedtime story, a lovely, nostalgic tale that we trot out once a year, but then quickly forget like those ornaments that we bring down from the attic at the beginning of December and then stow away at the beginning of January to be forgotten and to collect dust for another year. That's the way many people look at Christmas. But I want you to understand something tonight. The event we are here to commemorate is no quaint bedtime story. It is a true story. And it's not some tired old rerun either. It is, in fact, the most significant event in the history of the human race. C.S. Lewis got it right. He said, the glory of Christmas is that once upon a time, a stable held something that is bigger than our whole world. 
Now, I realize that is an extraordinary claim to make. Someone might even say, how in the world can you possibly say that? Well, I'll tell you. It's because Christmas offers us the four things that are absolutely essential to human flourishing. Four things without which life itself quickly becomes meaningless and absurd. And those four things are what? Those four things are love, peace, joy, and hope. Four things that are essential to a flourishing life. And four things that are all closely associated with the story of Christmas. Think about it. Love. In 1967, the Beatles debuted a brand new song. It was written by John Lennon, and it was entitled, All You Need Is Love. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The refrain goes something like this. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Now, my apologies to those of you who happen to be diehard Beatles fans tonight, but I've got to be honest, that song never did much for me. Uh, frankly, I've always found it a little tiresome and redundant. I mean, it's basically the same words repeated over and over again for nearly three minutes. Hardly what I would call a musical triumph. And yet there's no denying the fact that when that song first debuted, tiresome or not, redundant or not, it was wildly popular. In fact, it remains one of the Beatles' most popular songs today. And that's because the sentiment expressed in that song is exactly right. What we all need, what we all desire is love. In fact, if we're honest, I think we would have to admit that much of our life is spent in the pursuits of love. We write books, sonnets, and poems about love. We sing songs about love. We make movies about love. Shakespeare wrote a play, Romeo and Juliet, all about love. And many people keep pets, dogs, and cats because they long for love and they think that's the only place they are going to find it. There is nothing in this life that we desire more ardently or seek more diligently than love. And yet, sadly, for many people, love remains fleeting, Elusive, unrequited. History is a long legacy of broken hearts. What happens when you play a country western song backward? They say when you play a country western song backward, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get your job back, and eventually you get your love back. Well, why is that? Why is love fleeting? Why is love, true love, so rare? Well, certainly part of the answer has to do with the fact that love, by its very definition, love by its very nature, is self-giving. We all want to receive love, of course, but that means that someone, somewhere, has to be prepared to give it and to give it with no thought of return. And that's just the problem. We human beings are reluctant to give anything with no thought of return. We are, by nature, rather selfish creatures. We tend to be takers rather than 
givers. And let's just go ahead and admit it. Even on those rare occasions when we do give love freely, we generally only give it to those that we regard as lovable or attractive. Hollywood, I'm afraid, has ruined us here. Ask yourself, how many of those holiday, hallmark, romance movies that get broadcast over and over again at this time of the year, how many of those feature homely, unattractive people as the main characters? <laughs> I can tell you exactly, not a single one. All of the storylines are about beautiful, attractive people. In other words, those that by the world standards are worthy of love. But what does that mean for the rest of us who don't measure up to the world's standards? It means nothing but loneliness and despair. And this is why Christmas is so important. It's because Christmas reminds us that the love of God is not like that. The love of God is not like human love. It is not fleeting. It is not fickle. It is deep. It is abiding. It is a love that gives with absolutely no thought of return. You know, one of the great biblical passages about Christmas is John 3.16. Now, we don't think of it that way, but it really is true. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave. That he gave his one and only son to be born in a stable and to die upon a cross that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. You know, we human beings are often willing to give something, to give something good, provided that we know that we're going to get something better in return. We're often willing, for example, to give up a good job if we think there's a better one on the horizon. We're willing to give up a perfectly good house if we think there's a better one coming on the market and we can afford it. Some of us are even willing to give up a good relationship a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, a good spouse, provided that we think there's a better one waiting for us in the wings. Because we really are takers. We give, but only if we get something better in return. But what Christmas reminds us is that God's love is not like that at all. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is to say, held on to. But instead, he emptied himself and came down and took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Paul says that unlike our love, which gives with only something in return, Christ had the very best there was. There was nothing better. He was equal with the Father. All the dominion, the power, the glory, the honor, the praise that belonged to the Father belonged to the Son. But for us and for our salvation, he did what? The text says he emptied himself. And he came down, and he took on frail human flesh. And that's not all. It's not just that God's love is a giving love with nothing in return. But God's love is supremely shown 
toward those who are, listen to this, unattractive, distorted, ugly. Here's how Paul put it, this time writing to the Romans. He said, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't just show us his love when we have managed to clean up our act, when we have managed to pull ourselves together, when we have managed to make ourselves appealing or attractive to him. No, God loves us in spite of the fact that our lives have been ruined by sin and selfishness, distorted, made grotesque. God loves us. And the supreme example of that is the giving of his very own son to be our savior. Dorothy L. Sayers was a well-known English writer in the 20th century. She was a rather remarkable woman, plain in appearance, but she was brilliant. In fact, she was one of the very first women to graduate from Oxford University. And she would go on to become somewhat famous for a series of detective novels that she would write, in which the main character was a man by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. He was this debonair British aristocrat who went around solving crimes. And through most of the series, Lord Peter Whimsey was an avowed bachelor. But in the fifth book in the series, Dorothy L. Sayers, the author, does something rather unique. She introduces a new character. It's a woman. Her name is Harriet Vane, and she bears a remarkable resemblance to the author herself. As I said, she's not a particularly attractive woman, but she is brilliant. In fact, she's one of the very first women to graduate from Oxford University. Not only that, but get this. She is also the author of a series of detective novels. Well, Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey meet each other. They solve a few crimes together, and eventually they fall in love, get married, and live happily ever after. But those who have studied the works of Dorothy L. Sayers have been quick to point out the uncanny resemblance. They said that what happened was that Sayers looked into this world that she had created, and she looked at this man that she had created, and she fell in love with him. And so being the author, she did something rather extraordinary. She decided to write herself into the story because she saw that this man was lonely and in need of saving. Isn't that touching? Well, I want you to understand that is exactly what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. God has looked into this world that he has created. He has looked at the men and women that he has created, and he's seen that their lives have been distorted, twisted, ruined by sin and selfishness. They are starving for love. And so being the author of life, he does the extraordinary. He writes himself into the story in the person of Jesus Christ that you and I might know him, be known by him, and know his love fully. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has your heart been broken? Have you been disappointed by human promises? 
Is your heart longing for something more? Are you longing for that love which knows you fully with all your faults, all your blemishes, and loves you in spite of it? Well, if that's what you long for tonight, then I invite you to come to Bethlehem. I invite you to come and gaze upon the face of that little baby in the manger. And I want you to understand he is God's gift of love to you. So Christmas offers us true love. Christmas offers us something else that is essential to human flourishing. Christmas offers us an abiding peace. In tonight's gospel lesson, we read these words, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. In the Old Testament passage that we read a moment ago from Isaiah, we're told that the coming Messiah would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Like a golden thread, this theme of peace is woven throughout the entire tapestry of the Christmas story. We're told that that little baby who was born in Bethlehem came into this world in order to bring peace. And yet we can't help but ask ourselves, well, if that is true, where is this peace today? Because everywhere we turn, we see just the opposite, don't we? We see violence and discord, hatred and division. You take a look at what's happening right now in Israel and Gaza, the thousands of lives that have been lost, the ongoing war in Ukraine, the rising temperature in North Korea, the tensions between China and Taiwan, peace on earth. And mind you, you don't have to look overseas to see the problem. You can look right here at home, the deep political and ideological divisions that exist right here in our own country between the right and the left, the conservatives, the liberals, the Democrats, the Republicans, peace on earth, peace among men. There doesn't appear to be a modicum of peace anywhere. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, famous New England essayist and poet and intellectual with laser accuracy, I think, captured this sense of dissonance between the world as we see it and this Christmas promise of peace when he wrote these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to man. Now Longfellow had a point, didn't he? We can't help but ask, were those angels mistaken to speak of peace to the shepherds? Did Christ really, by his birth, by his incarnation, bring peace to the nations? Well, I'm happy to say that the answer to those two questions is an emphatic Yes. Yes, Christ has brought peace to the earth. In fact, Christ has brought the only chance for a true and lasting peace that this weary old planet of ours is ever going to have. Because, you see, contrary to what you have been told, the real problems that we face in this world are not political problems. They're not social problems. They're not racial problems. 
They are at their heart a spiritual problem. And they stem from the fact that men and women are at war, and not just at war with each other. We are at war with God. The New Testament describes humanity as being at enmity with God. That's a word that means in a constant state of hostility or opposition. The Bible teaches us that you and I, by our desire to be in charge of our own lives, to be the captains of our own fate, the masters of our own destiny. What we have done is we have, in essence, declared war on God. We have said, you're not God, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. I'm on the throne, and you're off. And so we declare war on God, and there are two problems with that. The first problem is this. God is not indifferent as to how his creatures regard him. And the second problem is this. When you declare war on God, you can't win. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that mere creatures can overcome the Almighty. And so we find ourselves in this terrible place. We declare war on God, and God might very well destroy us. But the wondrous message of Christmas is that God even though he's the injured party, even though he's the innocent party, even though he's the attacked party, rather than destroy us, decides to make peace with us. And he does so by sending his very own son as a peace offering. Here's how Paul describes it in his letter to the Colossians. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God chose to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You think about that. You and I declare war on God, and God decides to make peace with us by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And here's something else. Once we have peace with God through faith in Christ's work, the Bible says we can begin to experience the peace of God. That peace which passes human understanding. That peace of mind, peace of heart. What the ancient Jews called shalom. You know, there are many people out there in the world tonight, probably some in this building, who long for peace. They have everything that the world says should make them contented and peaceful. They've got a claim. They've got money. They've got success. And in spite of it all, they are not Restful, they are restless. If that is the case with you tonight, I want you to understand you will never experience the peace of God for which you long until you first have peace with God through faith in Christ's work. But once you do have peace with God, you can have the peace of God because you realize you are no longer under a sentence of death. You are no longer condemned. You are pardoned. God has adopted you into his family and nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate you now from his 
love. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, nothing can separate you from his love. And when you realize that, an abiding peace begins to flood your soul. And once you have the peace of God, which comes from peace with God, you can begin to make peace with one another because you realize that your identity is not wrapped up in the type of car that you drive or the neighborhood that you live in. But your identity is wrapped up in the fact that God is no longer against you. God is for you. And you can begin to make peace with others because those little insults that used to get under your skin, they don't bother you as much. You discover this supernatural ability to look at other people with an altogether new light, in a forgiving light, and to realize, ah, but for the grace of God, there go I. This is what Charles Wesley was getting at in that great Christmas carol when he wrote, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Peace on earth, peace in your life, it's not a pipe dream. It's a reality. Jesus Christ is our peace. He came to make peace. He came to bring peace. And he can give his peace to you tonight. So Christmas offers us true love. It offers us an abiding peace. It offers us a third thing that is essential to human flourishing. Christmas offers us true joy. We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Joy, like peace, is pervasive in the Christmas story. You find it everywhere. And the New Testament teaches that joy is one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian life. Now, in order to understand this, you need to recognize that there is a profound difference between what the world offers, which is happiness... And what the Bible speaks of, which is joy. Happiness is an emotion. It's a feeling of euphoria that we all experience when everything is going our way. It is entirely dependent on your circumstances. In this sense, happiness is like the high that a person experiences when they are on drugs. When an addict is on a high, everything is wonderful. It's all euphoric. But sooner or later, something happens to bring you down so that you require another hit to bring you back up again. Well, that's the way it is with many people in their lives. They look at life as this great balancing act. It's like one of those old-fashioned balance scales that you used to see in a pharmacy or in a candy store, you know, with the two arms. If you put something on one side, it gets weighed down. What do you have to do to bring about balance? You have to apply some sort of a counterweight to bring things back up again. And that's the way many people think. What happens when your life is weighed down by sorrow and disappointment and hardship? Well, you've got to apply some sort of counterweight to bring you back up because happiness and sorrow cannot coexist. They cancel each other out. And the severity of your disappointment will determine the size of the counterweight. Whether the only thing that is necessary to bring you back up again is a new pair of shoes or a trip around the world. But the point is that it's this constant balancing act until 
Until what? Well, until something so terrible, so horrendous, so awful happens in your life that you discover that there is nothing on this earth that can serve as a counterweight. My wife and I have some dear friends who six months ago lost their son in a tragic accident. Their kids grew up with our kids. We vacationed together. I baptized the boy. He was in his 20s. He had just earned his master's degree. His whole life was in front of him, and he was suddenly killed unexpectedly in an accident. And we've been walking through this with them over the course of the past six months, and I can tell you there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this life that can serve as a counterweight to assuage the anguish, the misery, and the pain that they have experienced. Nothing. No lottery windfall. No trip around the world can do it. And sooner or later, that's what happens to all of us. That's why the Bible doesn't talk about mere happiness. It talks about something far more important. It talks to us about joy. Unlike happiness, which cannot coexist with sorrow, joy can coexist with sorrow. In fact, it is joy that can get you through the sorrows. It is joy that can help you rise above the sorrow. Here's how Jesus described joy. It's in John's Gospel, the 16th chapter. He was speaking to his disciples, and he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the Lord will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I was present when all four of our children were born, and I can testify to the truth of the Lord's statement. When my wife delivered our four children, she was in utter anguish. Now, part of that was due to the fact that we had big babies. In fact, we didn't have a single child under nine pounds. Our second child was 10 pounds, three ounces. That's like delivering a butterball turkey. She had great anguish, but the minute that the doctor placed that child in her arms, it wasn't as though the pain went away, it was as though the joy just flooded it. And that's what Christ offers us in Christmas, the joy that comes from the knowledge that God loves you unconditionally that he has given his son for you and for your salvation, that you can have peace with him and the peace of God. And when you have those things, there is a joy that begins to flow in your life. Tim Keller, who until recently was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, described joy as a subterranean river. And I think that's a great description. Some years ago, we visited the Shenandoah Caverns in Virginia, and these caverns are unique in that you have to access them by means of an elevator shaft. And I remember the first thing that struck me as we began to go beneath the surface was the dramatic change in temperature. 
The day we visited, it was miserably hot. It was one of those terribly hot, humid, oppressive Virginia days. Hadn't rained for over a month. Everything was parched and dry. But the minute we began to descend beneath the surface, everything changed. It became moist. It became cool. And the guide explained that was because there was this subterranean river that was flowing beneath the surface that had carved out those caverns and kept everything at a constant 57 degrees even when everything else around it was dry and barren. That's what joy is like in the life of a Christian. It doesn't mean that the sorrows go away. It doesn't mean that there's no more pain or disappointment. It does mean that you are aware of the fact that God is with you. That's what the incarnation is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you in the midst of those sorrows and those pains. And when you realize that, a subterranean river of joy begins to flow in your life that can help you rise above the disappointments and sorrows of this world. Do you long for that kind of joy, not mere happiness? Are you tired of that balancing act? You come to Bethlehem tonight. Gaze upon the face of your Savior and experience a joy unspeakable. So Christmas offers us love, it offers us peace, it offers us joy, it offers us one thing more that's essential to human flourishing, it offers us hope. Viktor Frankl was a well-known Jewish psychiatrist and psychologist who was imprisoned in the death camps during World War II. He would survive and years later in the 1950s he would go on to write a book that would become a classic called man's search for meaning. And in that, he would talk about what happened to people who were facing great adversity but lost hope. And he tells the story of one man in particular. This man was his bunkmate. He said his bunkmate had a dream that the war was going to end on March 30th and he was going to be liberated. And he began to live for that moment. But as the weeks and the months slipped by and the date approached, it became apparent that the war was not going to end on March 30th, and he said, my friend lost hope. Here's how he recorded it. He said, on March 29th, the day before he thought the war would end, he spiked a high fever. On March 30th, the day he thought the war would end, he slipped into a deep coma. And on March 31st, the day after he thought the war would end, he died. Frankel said, his loss of hope had lowered his bodily resistance to all of the diseases and illnesses that were going through the camp. And within a few hours, he was gone. There are many things that you and I can live without. We cannot live without hope. Every single one of us tonight is hoping in something the only question is, what are you hoping in? In whom are you hoping? Are you hoping in the triumph of the human spirit? Are you hoping in the better angels of your neighbor? Are you hoping in your own ingenuity and your own abilities? All of those things will serve as a great disappointment to you sooner or later. Or are you hoping in God? Are you hoping in that one 
who was the Word by whom all things were made, who came down and took on human flesh that we might behold his glory. Are you hoping in that one who, though he was rich, he made himself poor, that you and I might be truly rich? Are you hoping in that one who, though he was the Son of God, became a Son of Man, so that sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God? Because, folks, that is the only sure foundation for a true and certain hope. Some of you came here tonight thinking to yourself, oh, I know the story of Christmas. It's just a tired old rerun. It has lost its power in your life. Well, if that is the case, I want you to think again. And I want you to come tonight to Bethlehem. I want you to come tonight with the eyes of faith. Come as you have never come before. Come with an open heart and gaze upon the face of that baby lying in the manger. That baby who would grow to manhood, offer himself as a sacrifice upon the cross, who will come again to take those who love him with him to that place where there's no more sorrow, no more sighing, no more grief, where he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I invite you to come to Bethlehem and come to know Jesus Christ and experience all the joy, all the peace, all the hope, all the love, that makes for a Merry Christmas. Oh, come, let us adore him. Amen.